You're listening to Theology Untucked with Tim and Caleb. Our aim, as always, is to help the people of God understand, love, and enjoy the Word of God. For more information, visit us at theologyuntucked.com. You are listening to another episode of Theology Untucked with Tim and Caleb. Tonight's episode is titled, Creation and the Fall, Part 2. And now, here are your hosts and theologians in Simpiendi, Tim and Caleb. Tim, how are you tonight, my friend? I am doing pretty good. I am in the middle of working on one of my, uh, actually my last paper for our doctoral program. Uh, outside of our dissertation and our uh, comprehensives, so I'm I'm kind of sitting up on, well, cloud seven so far. I'm I'm almost done, and uh, I'll be finished tomorrow with it. Actually, it's due next week, but we're going away to a water park this weekend, so I did not want to have to deal with this. So I'm I'm glad to be finishing up that. It was kind of a tough argument. I was in Matthew 23 the whole time, trying to do uh, where biblical archaeology crosses over with biblical theology. Interesting stuff. Hmm. Yeah, it, uh, we had our last meeting with our cohort, which yep. I, you know, I got a little tearful. Uh, had uh, I did too. Had Doctor Scott Stripling. Um, for any of you biblical archaeology nerds, um, we uh, our Old Testament um, uh, mentors, uh, Doctor Phil and Sarah Bollinger. Uh, actually, they're married and they're both old or Old Testament. Uh, mentors in the biblical track um, yep. have a relationship with, with Scott Stripling so it was just really neat hmm. to have him and, and visit with him kind of about I wanted to ask him like hey you you hiring uh, but I didn't get the chance to do that well he did mention that anyone can go and uh, volunteer on their digs they're digging Shiloh yeah uh, and and what looks like uh the tabernacle uh, remains there, which are just you got to pay to go things. do that though, and not get paid. So I'm I yeah, thinking. I know. I mean, but I would love, I would love, still, I would pay to do that. Um, if I, mean, I had getting time. to dig up some of that stuff is just almost unimaginable. Yeah, really cool stuff. So tonight, Tim, we are theologians beginning again in Simpiendi, hmm. and so we're going back into Genesis. Uh, we ended yep. with chapter. One, there's still so much stuff that we could have covered. We we could spend a whole year even just talking right. in to, to Genesis 1. Uh, Maybe really we'll do that could. some year, but not this Maybe one. we will. Uh, but we're going to kind of go into chapter 2. Um, now, mm-hmm. if y'all listened to last week's episode, you know, I recently brought up um, very, I guess, vaguely kind of mentioned the idea of what would be called co-atomism and pre-atomism. And the reason why it's relevant and why we are starting here, Tim, um, is, well, first of all, we, we know that these views are out there. Um, and, and actually, evangelical biblical scholars, this isn't necessarily always coming from the secular world, but they bring up other propositions. Um, and, and I don't know necessarily what, not that there's, I, I think that, I think they're doing good work, but bringing up other propositions of what the text would allow with co-atomism and pre-atomism. While that's relevant is chapter 2 of Genesis is where we have this uh, snapshot picture of Adam and Eve. 
Um, but the idea of co-atomism and pre-atomism kind of plays into this in the sense the idea of a plurality of men and women created Adam and Eve being a part of that um, on day six of creation or pre-atomism, which would be a creation of a plurality of men and women. And then Adam and Eve would be a sequel um, outside of the day six of creation. So However, what's I, the problem I... with that, Tim? Well, let me let me explain it in simpler terms. Um, uh, not because I want to insult anyone, because these are these are not a positions that you will typically hear uh, bouncing around in, in the churches. Church. That's it, right. Yeah. You're so right. Let, let, so this might be very new to some people um, that are listening, because um, I mean, it's, you know, it's another year, so there's another theory about what Genesis one through eleven means. Um, so, so the idea of, of pre-atomism has this concept that, uh, there's supposedly two creation narratives in the opening chapters of Genesis, one in chapter one through, uh, chapter two, verse three, and then chapter two, verse four following is different creation. Not like it's different heavens and earth, but that it's, it's a completely a different completely creation different, account. Right. Um, so let's start with pre-atomism. Pre-atomism takes into account that maybe chapter one, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, it, it could have been who knows how far in the past before Adam. We can insert just whatever we want. However, it's almost irrelevant. And so the idea was that when God is describing at the end of Genesis 1, verses um, uh, 27 and onwards, where God forms man and woman, uh, makes them in the image of God, that this is not Adam and Eve. This is uh, a different couple or maybe many couples or right. maybe thousands. Who knows? There's no, there's no limit on it. Um, so this is kind of what's called, uh, you know, this pre-atomism concept. The co-atomism concept is that, it's, uh, that this is all happening at the same time, but it's not just Adam and Eve being made. Maybe there's other couples as well. And, um, and that... Now, so there's a couple of things with this. One is is it's trying to work with the text, but it's also trying to find where the where the holes are in the text. Maybe that we can plug some stuff into and explain some things, like who did Adam's and Eve's children marry, and you know all that kind Correct. of question. You know, without you know without causing DNA you know issues, and uh, it's trying to fix things while trying to stay um, at least at least dealing with the text rather than throwing it out which is what used to happen is people just kind of throw it away and say oh that's nice mythology we'll just move on um and so these types of things are out there and if you haven't run into them yet you'll run into them at some point and it's important to know yeah i agree so, um at, i and tim I, I don't want to speak for you but i, I already kind of know where you land and i'm gonna land into the to the more traditional view uh, so, um, I think there's some other stuff that we'll be able to kind of explain part of some of these gaps when we get into Genesis three, mm -hmm. um, maybe something that you haven't heard before in the church, but not, not something that's totally crazy. Um, and it's not that it's not that, that the pre-atomism co-atomism, well, I'm not going to speak for you here either. I'm not, I'm not going to say it's totally crazy. You probably would. I, I no, definitely I would, wouldn't say it's totally crazy, but, but I no. wouldn't. Um, I, w I definitely don't have as big of a problem with the co-atomism 
rather than the pre-atomism. But then again, I'm going to go to the traditional view. And Tim, let's go ahead and talk about why we would both kind of have a problem with that. And it really kind of starts at Genesis 2-4. Right. So, I mean, there's there's a number of things that are problematic. One is just the basic interpretational matrix. Um, We're trying to wedge something into the text rather than to listen to the plain meaning. Um, now that does not mean that God did not make other people other than Adam and Eve straight up on its face, right? right. We actually have to go to other places in scripture to know that we're not fully 100% certain because God, when he's telling these stories is obviously not being exhaustive in the amount of information he's giving. Um, he's being definitive. So now I am right with you. I I do not see that there is any, even if there was room for them in the Genesis narrative for for other people other than Adam and Eve being created at this time. I do not see that as viable, keeping into account that you know there's other passages of Scripture that come after Genesis one and two. But even if we're dealing with just Genesis one and two, we have our starting point is Genesis chapter two verse four. Right. And so the division supposedly between the two creation narratives happens at Genesis chapter two, verse four. And so the idea is that Genesis one, one through Genesis two, verse three is one account of creation. And then Genesis two, verse four is a completely different, wholly not connected, maybe way after type thing or just confused. Or maybe it's a whole nother one that's conflictable. Um, and some people have said, you know, oh, there, you know, there's just there's two creation errors. Which one do you hold to? Is this kind of like gotcha uh, for for people who are still stupid enough in 2021 to believe that God created the heavens and the earth? Um, so let's just deal here in the text before we fly off anywhere else. Um, Genesis chapter two verse four. Uh, these are the toledot is the Hebrew word. We generally translate that generations or account, uh, so forth. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, let's just stop there because we're going to run into this idea throughout Genesis. The Toledot here of the heavens and the earth. The Toledot of Adam. Uh, I believe that's in Genesis chapter 4 that comes up. Uh, you get the Toledot of Noah, the Toledot of Terah, which is Abraham's father, uh, and, and the things that come out of that. This one is the generations or the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Just in case it wasn't clear, let me say that again. These are the generations, the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So now we know what time period we're talking about. So if we're, we're talking about this, Genesis chapter one is like way in the past, way before Adam and Eve, that, that kind of really has a hard time dealing with Genesis two verse four, um, because Genesis two verse four gives us the setting of what comes after it. That's the whole point of the Hebrew word Toledot. Um, I like the new English translations use of this word uh it translated as the account of the heavens and the earth because it's not always just connected to genealogy it's not that kind of concept with generations um that that idea is a little bit more complex than that and so then it goes in and seems to mess up the order of what we just read in genesis 1 when no bush of the field was yet in the land 
and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And then he goes into the planting of the Garden of Eden. All right, so I what, don't have what, a problem. What do problem. we do with this? So, so, there's, so people are going to say there is a sequence problem. Um, right. however, there's not still necessarily a sequence problem. And, and you can also think about, you can get scientific with it. Um, there's not necessarily a sequence problem based upon what I'm seeing in the text. He's saying no shrub of the field had yet grown on, had yet grown on the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprouted. I, I think that, that part right there had yet sprouted. So that that's that's telling me there is there's seed there's the process. So just because um, the the plants and all that stuff were made be before, because it, it's seeming like it's seeming like now something's out of order. God created Adam before these plants are coming up, but 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 the text doesn't necessarily bring into an account that there's necessarily a sequence problem. It's explaining kind of, you know, it hasn't rained. It's explaining how it's getting its its water, but but the other right. point of the theological point that that we don't want to miss with Genesis one going into two is it's not a scientific account of it. That there is some deep theology happening here, and so we're going to get right. into this idea of sacred space and and what right. God's specifically doing and setting up. Um, for this special, it, we we can tell from the text it's alluding that there's something special about Eden. There's something special about this orchard, this place that had a literal geography with a literal man and woman. Um, and, and so that's what I'm that's what I'm wanting to kind of uh, people to see in it. That's what I see in the text. Um, I don't see a sequence problem if you think about just if you read the text there doesn't necessarily even have to be a sequence problem um, does right. that make sense do you, do you understand what i'm saying on that yeah no i yeah i i don't have any issue with that either um and here's the thing uh, i i think i think one of the main problems we have as modern people is we come back to genesis chapter one a book written 3500 years ago um, and we expect it to be giving a history as we write our history books. There is purpose behind why they write history. There's always purpose. It doesn't mean they're not writing accurate history. It means they are making particular selections to present a reality. Um, and the so this idea of, you know, we need to go in here and pick apart exactly what order of events happen and what and that's not they even what the original readers were working with. That's not what they're looking for doing this. It's just coming in here and saying, "Look, when no bush was in the field, and there was, yeah, and, and yet in the uh, and in the ESV will actually translate to to draw this out. It will not translate the term Eretz here as Earth. It it's translates land. it as land. It's drawing its attention to the fact that this is hyper local. Uh, right. That 
because in Hebrew, the same, and we do that in our word. language as well. We use earth, which can be like, you know, there's an earth mover, which is just a, like a backhoe. And then there's the earth, which is the, the globe that we live on. And so we, we go from, we use the same term both ways. In, in Hebrew, it's the exact same. You have earth, meaning for them, all the stuff below our feet. They're obviously not dealing with a, a globular concept or anything like that. So all the stuff that we walk on, the entirety of it, and also all the stuff right near where I am, the stuff I'm digging out with this shovel is also Eretz. It's land. It's dirt. It's the same stuff that I'm made of, right? Um, now, they have another one for that even further, much more localized, which is dust of the ground. It's Adama. Um, and, and so that's even more so. But so you'll see this with the ESV. It won't. It will say in verse five, no bush of the field was yet in the land. Uh, that is the exact same word that is used for earth earlier on where God created the heavens and the earth. Right. But they're drawing out this focus that this is really more localized. We're dealing with looking at the land and and the same concept kind of goes for the people as they're wandering the desert reading this the first time. Moses is writing to them, look, when there wasn't any field uh, bushes or anything like that, at no plant of the field, or excuse me, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. It's very focused as it's well on what type of plants. Geography. It, it's not, right. it doesn't have the whole world in view. And, Correct. And that's why that's I believe. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and I believe that's where we can get, you can get, it's not that the NET or ESVs or the KJV, you know, one's better than the other one. There's all no. some things um, from when, when a transliteration into the English language, I'm, I'm going to say that it makes better sense um, for the ESV over the uh, NET on this idea of earth versus land. I, I think it makes right. better sense where it's more localized. However, the NET still... Could still be good if you look at the next sense. No plant of the field. It, so right. it's we 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 don't have the world in view here. We have a specific geography. Uh, Walton's going to talk about a lot, this idea of cosmic geography. That's kind of the point of what I see is they're trying to get focused on this local specific geography of Eden. Right, right, and so and so you'll get. Uh, and some of this stuff is specifically focusing on smaller inedible plants of the field and then more of the um, like the, the the plants of the field, the ones that you actually go out and like cultivate, like wheat and so forth. These types of things do seem to be in focus here. It's not talking about no plants in the world have grown yet. That's not what it's saying. That's right. That's not saying What it's that. saying is that no bush of the field yet in this land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Uh, the Lord God had not caused it to rain again on the land. Is this talking about the entire earth? It's talking about a focused geography based so, upon so what this, it's this, this, this really becomes uh, a bigger question because I know in the more traditional sense of reading these things, in a more easier sense, it's talking about the entire earth. What did not have rain and then there, and um, etc. Et so, does that mean that nowhere on the face of the entire planet there was any rain clouds and no weather and no rain? I think that is taking the text too far. Yeah, that's not um, the point. Now, 
Now, does that mean that it was indeed raining somewhere else? I have no information about what was happening elsewhere on the planet. That's not the focus of Genesis 2. <laughs> it would the also make of... sense as to Moses' original audience could also understand that idea of it not raining, being in the desert, being a ballad. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, right. Because they're, they're in a very arid, dry climate. But so, so now that we've got that, I guess, kind of covered, Verse 8 is definitely, for me, the big tell as to, hey, this is a special place because look who planted the orchard. Right. God, it's, God that, it's God that planted this orchard. Right, um, and, and he did that after he made man. Uh, and so now we're, we're certainly talking about hyper, hyper localization. And... Honestly, if localization solves all of the ordered problems, supposedly, of verses 5 and 6, then the fact that it is indisputable that verse 8 introduces an even more localized, we're just zooming in, zooming in, zooming in, all the way down, um, I, I think is the most natural way to read this in the common sense, um, makes, makes perfect sense to me. So what about this idea that, that God did not cause it to rain on the land there um, because there's no man to work the ground? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, but, a theological and, and a classic, point that, 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 that the author's trying to make. I, I think there's, there's quite a bit wrapped in here that we, we tend to read more from a, a claim of scientific description, which is, but there's a lot of theology behind it. I think you're exactly right because he's talking about the fact that there's, there's no rain on the, in the land. Um, which I would go with that translation here rather than the earth, um, because it would make much more sense that this is localized. And there was, I mean, with the rest of the context, it's just, I don't really see how you can claim the entire planet is in focus here. And there was no man to work the ground. And a traditionally translated mist mm. went forth, uh, was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. That really 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 becomes a bigger problem uh because that is not what we see in the rest of this chapter we see rivers uh going out and watering the face of the ground um and by the way this this exact word is not only translatable as mist but also as springs um so this idea that nowhere on the entire face of the earth it ever rained and there was only a mist every night uh, and we try to construct how in the world a weather system works like that. And then we go down the road of trying to devise out climactic design. We've lost the text entirely. There's also some polemic discourse, too, because it's obvious the ancient Near East, they worshipped they worshiped these thunder gods, these gods that brought rain um, right. that as, as being the source of life. And so theologically, we have, look, there... There, there are no, there are no. Even though he's just saying, God had not caused it to rain on the earth, that that would have spoke to Moses' um, generation of, of people, like, hey, there, there is no other God of rain. There, there is no storm God. There is no other um, deity bringing life to this earth other than mm -hmm. your God. That right. the Creator God is is what's is what's causing all of this life to spring up um right. all of this vegetation that's that's coming up i don't need rain for that um the the 
light on the first day. I, I don't need a sun for there to be light. I said there was light and there was light. Um, right. I don't need I don't need there to be rain for vegetation to sprout from the ground. And I I formed man out of the dust, and I'm the one that right. breathed life into him. So right. these theological and concepts that, are are kind of basic, but but then also very very important for us to get is to the intent the original author's intent of what he's trying to communicate. And after we address original author's intent, we have to go to audience. Yes. If if we're talking about springs coming out of the ground, my friend, who is the first hearers of the book of Genesis, but those who were watered from God's springs in the ground, right? The whole point of this is introducing the people of Israel as they're leaving Egypt, wandering the desert. They're introducing God to them. This God that you've seen water you from the rock, this God that caused springs to come forth and water the whole face of the ground, you have physically already done that. That is where life comes from. This God is the one who does that. It's not the, it's not the other gods of, of rain and things like this. And by the way, we get into that later. I'm the one that's sending the rain. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, all that kind of stuff falls on the ears of the Israelites walking through the deserts in different ways than it falls on ours. And we really need to be mindful of that rather than trying to construct what the, you know, what the proto earth here looked like, or, you know, you know, whether there was, you know, a platypus or a dinosaur or something walking around it. None of those things are in question here in the text. What's at question here is what was Moses writing about and what were the people of Israel hearing um, and something that I find goes very often overlooked with regards to Genesis, especially the first chapters. So let's move on into verse 9. So Lord God made all kinds of trees grow from the soil, every tree mm -hmm. that was pleasing to look at, and mm -hmm. good for food. So these are trees that are growing food. Now the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil were in the middle of the orchard. The mysterious tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There, there's some interesting ideas to pull from this, um, because what, what, what are these two trees? Two literal trees, two allegorical trees, both. You know, it, it, so, so it, it is our first hint that we're dealing with a different world yes. than you and I know. Um, before this, everything seems kind of normal, except for, you know, you live in a weird land that's only watered by like springs from the ground or let, let's say mist either way. Right. You, you live in a world that's completely different than our world uh, or, or a land that's completely different than our land. You know, it rains in our land, right? It was raining all day here today. Right. Um, it, there's something different there's and something we should be different. expecting something a little bit different and yet we see something a lot different we see the tree of life that was in the midst of this you called it orchard i actually kind of like that concept because everything here is a description of trees it seems um which would make more much more sense um and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil obviously now we've got we've got things that can stand in as uh, allegorical representations as well as literal they are physically and now, in some bizarre sense, spiritually there. Because you're dealing with attributes. Yeah. Life and good and evil. What does a tree have to do with any of these things? Obviously, the answer is it doesn't. 
uh, the tree of life might the tree of the knowledge of good and evil seems almost representative of something else or maybe it is also something entirely different you're meant to be i, I say this often in, in in my small groups if something confuses you sit and be confused for a while yeah. experience that feeling because that's that's purposeful it here. should yeah it it should it should bring a sense, just that simple sentence should bring a sense of awe and wonder and confusion. Yep. Um, and it, just quite simply, Eden is what we're long, longing for. That, that, that's, that, that's, that's the way that we were created, to be in this place with God. Um, and so, this statement shouldn't, make sense necessarily to us there there is there's something off on this sentence mm -hmm. um I, I think that's i think that's the point um yep. i think that's the point so we go into verse 10 a river flows from eden um and so it's the river that's now watering this orchard and from mm -hmm. there it divides into four head streams so we've got river, uh, a river flowing out of Eden. So Eden is uphill. Um, Eden is just the uh, it's just the Hebrew word. It is a proper name now because of this, just like Adam is. But also Adam means man. Um, Eden means pleasure. Um, it, it that's it. It's kind of like this fulfillment concept. Um, so there's even a play on that there. Mm -hmm. um, but you have a river flowing out of Eden. Eden is not the name of the garden. It's called the Garden of Eden. Eden is uphill, and a river's flowing out of it to water the garden, which is downhill from Eden. Okay, so let's get that. See, we have Pishon runs through the entire land of Havilah, where there's mm -hmm. gold. Gold of that land is pure. Pearls and lapis lazuli are also there. We're going to see that type of language on these um, these fine stones and gold later. Um, at, mm -hmm. but because we don't know necessarily what the text is doing um, right now, um, unless you know we're using hindsight. But right now that you know, gold, lapis lazuli. Uh, the name of the second river is the Gihon. It runs through the entire land of Cush. Well, we know mm -hmm. where Cush is at. The name of the mm -hmm. third river is Tigris. It runs alongside Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, mm -hmm. I'm familiar with the Tigris, the Euphrates. What about right. the Pishon and the Gihon? You'd be less familiar with those, I'd imagine. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Uh, because they're not there. They're not there. Right. Um, so there's just something really interesting. So let's that. get more confused let's because more confused. Uh, we also know at the time that the uh, Israelites are walking through the desert, the Pishon and the Gihon are not there either. They were not there in the Middle Bronze Age. But the Tigris so and the we, Euphrates are. The Tigris and Euphrates are. And where are they pouring out into? They're, right. they're they, pouring out in the Persian Gulf. Right. Um. So are we supposed to be cleared up yet? <laughs> no. Or more confused. More confused. Again, what are they? Again, let's let's hear this as best as we can in the ears of those who are walking in the desert. Why is he giving all of these, you know, stones so that they can go? Well, 
we can reconstruct where these rivers were based on whether we can find gold at the base of this. None of that. Again, that's how we're reading it because we want to do this. We want to go identify it and see everything and dig them all up and find all. The, you know, no. Yeah, we want to go look get at all the, the wealth. Gold. Look at all the wealth here, right? It doesn't. It, it goes. This river comes out of Eden, goes through the garden, divides into four rivers. Two of them you're aware of, but the other two, it 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 goes to places that aren't in existence anymore. Even Kush, that terminology is not the Kush that's like Ethiopia Kush. This is something else entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, what what are we dealing with here? The reality is they don't know either. The, this is not a this is not a a clear expression of where these things are. Yeah. Yet you have the Tigris and the Euphrates. Are, are specifically just mentioned. I love how it takes one verse to talk about the Tigris and Euphrates, but it took three verses to discuss the first two, the two that they don't know about. Because mm-hmm. the Pishon um, and the Gihon were not um, were not rivers the- at the time that uh, that they were walking through the desert there. We know that because we... Well, we know that. Do we know on uh, specifically of Havila? What is the Havila, land of Havila? Yeah, Havila is a it is a proper named place that people would be aware of. Uh, it's mentioned in later parts, uh, chapter ten. Um, I want to say, hang on a second. Let me I'm see here. To look up because yeah, I'm not that fast at pulling up stuff like that. Hang on a second. Do 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 do. Now, the second river is the Gihon. Gihon Spring that's in Jerusalem. So, let's see. The Havila. Yeah, so chapter 10 has references to uh, Havila. Again, uh, listed kind of in some of the descendants in the Table of Nations of chapter 10. Um and then in chapter 25 then you have some other ones later on in samuel, first samuel in the chronicles, chronicles right um so obviously we're talking about someplace completely different because what's interesting I mean, is havila is one of the sons of cush at least one of the descendants yes yeah so that's right that's interesting yeah, so there's, so how kind of all that fits together is a little bit difficult because, I mean, we're obviously talking about a world before the flood, but again, are we talking about things that the people who are wandering the desert were familiar with? Um, I would say yes, uh, and he's drawing their attention to God is expressing to you things that you are familiar with and describing how the land was. Now, does that mean that the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers of all things in the world survived the worldwide flood that's about to occur in a couple of chapters? Or does that mean that the people that survived the flood renamed the two main rivers that they saw where they made their first settlements after these two rivers that were here post-flood? I don't know. Maybe. Um, I, don't, I, I don't really have that answer. And, and here's the thing. The text is not calling us to answer that question I'm not even going to try to answer that question because I don't think it's really been subsequently answered um, very well. I mean, this is this is a difficult concept 
with regards to where all this stuff is. One of the nice things about it is we see at the very beginning of creation, God has put goodness and wealth into the earth. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people read this stuff trying to figure out geography without just being thankful first. You know, look, look at it's not saying, you know, oh, that's the one that goes down to the tar pits that really smell and everything's horrible. And that's where the dangerous animals live that try to kill you. It's that's where God put gold. Mm-hmm. And over there, that's where God put onyx. And over there is bdellium. And over there is uh, and, and all of these just bring life and water and it feeds everything and grows everything. That kind of stuff really shouldn't be missed as you're going through this. And and so just another interesting search. So on Pishon, that's the only place we're going to see the Pishon. Right. The Gihon, actually, however, is um, later in the text. We're not going to see Gihon again until we get into Kings. But this is obviously in the city of David, the Gihon Spring. Um, mm-hmm. So now we can kind of understand a little bit as to what they thought about where the temple area was at, where Jerusalem is at. There's this Edenic temple idea. Um, you know, m- maybe is it the literal Gihon that that they're talking about in Genesis? Not really the point. That's what they named or it, it. because or is it they, at least an homage? It's right. definitely a, a, at least an homage because they're thinking about Eden. They're, t- they're thinking about the cosmic garden they're, they're thinking and, and about relationship so, with god so should they so should they you know i mean the idea of water coming out of the ground that you didn't have to dig for that's just remarkable especially you know, in that, jerusalem if you've ever been there that there's that's the only source of water there well today it is yeah yes. today that's um, that's the yep. only source of water um and of course this is this is where they're headed to <laughs> um this this promised mm-hmm. land eventually where, where they're going to end up at all right, so now let's go into verse 15. Um, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the orchard. So God's the one that places him in the orchard after he's planted it. And he has the man care for it and maintain it. Mm-hmm. And the Lord commands the man, freely eat the fruit of every tree of the orchard, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when mm-hmm. you eat of it, you will surely die. So this is what's interesting, too. The command... Here is to only not eat of this one tree. They can still eat of the tree of life. I mean, they're they're, mm-hmm. they're in they're in the garden that God created. That's full of life. That every every tree that's in it um, is responsible for sustaining life. And then right. there's an actual tree of life, but it's this mm-hmm. one of the knowledge of good and evil that they're forbidden to be able to eat from now i I will i will treat us with a little bit of a cheat from the next chapter and bring in the reference to what the tree of life's ability has which is the ability to sustain eternal life correct um you see that in the last verses of chapter three and so i'm going to import that back into here i don't usually do that but it's important for us to see that we are not dealing with an apple tree we're not dealing with a normal tree. And I don't think either of these two trees in any way are normal. Um, the tree of life is something completely unknown to us that was able to sustain immortal, eternal, supported life. 
Yeah, I, I say all those things because we, we we tend to get this idea of, well, it's just one of those trees yeah. there. And it's like, no, 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 no. After Adam and Eve sinned, I'm sorry, I'm giving away, you know, chapter three. If you've never read Genesis three, I apologize. Uh, you know, after Adam and Eve sin, they would still be able to reach their hand out and take from the tree of life, eat and live forever in the sinful fallen state and that's why it's removed so that how graceful is that there is some physical spiritual element to this tree physically and spiritually this is a real tree in our real history that adam and eve could have put their hand out eaten from and lived forever and we can relate to that today though that that idea tim you know we can we can relate to that today just the the thought of how we know how there there is this somewhat of a a divide between our flesh and and the spirit that we're battling this fleshly world and we're longing to be in this spiritual place um, right but there but there's also you know we it's wrong for us to think of heaven as like this i don't know this floaty place it it has physicality with it too. Um, it has location, yeah. And so let's go ahead and since we brought in Genesis three, let's go ahead and go all the way to the end of the story in Revelation. the The story ends in the Garden of Eden with this tree of life, tree um, of life again. Um, after right. after Christ has came back and and done all that He's going to do um, this second time, we're going to be in this garden with this tree of life. It starts with the um, garden and the tree of life, and it ends in the garden with the tree of life. Um, yeah, it does. And now a garden that's overtaken the entire world, and you have uh, the presence of God always living with his people rather than just visiting like we have here. There's some crossover, but there seems to be some temporality to the crossovers here where you know the Lord God didn't visit until the cool of the day in the evening. Uh, the what what things are happening here again we're talking about a section of time history and place that we're not privy to um and so but we do get more detail in the book of revelation wherein the tree of life there is expressed as having and containing 12 fruits a different fruit in each season uh or in each month of the year right and then um its leaves are used for healing Hmm. um so whether there's been some upgrades <laughs> or that's exactly what they're looking at here uh i'm not going to try i'm not going to try to pull apart but i will say it is not a tree like any other tree even here in genesis 2 yeah it it's so the question is it a literal tree or a spiritual tree yes it's a literal tree yes to both it's a literal it's physical a literal spiritual tree it's a physical spiritual tree it makes the story makes absolutely no sense if it is not. This is not an allegory, right? You do not you do not use words like toledote if you're speaking allegories. Um, those are those are historical narrative markers. You you do not just use historical narrative markers as a cool fiction, as if they have that kind of writing style. They were writing this as a way to describe to them how they came to be in Egypt. Mm. They are real humans that are literal, physical, spiritual beings. 
And Moses is expressing to them, this is how you got there. Mm -hmm. This is why when we get to Abraham's story, the timeline slows down like a snail. Right. And we spend 38 chapters talking about three generations when we spent 11 chapters talking about, gosh, who knows, you know, dozens. So it, it at least dozens, if not even more. Um, so it's really, really hard for us to kind of grasp how this falls on their ears. But the reality is they are not reading this as if it did not actually happen. And we shouldn't either. And so now we got, we move into this idea of dominion. Um, Mm -hmm. all of these animals, every bird of the air, uh, he brings them to the man to see what he would name them. I, I think that's neat. It's like God. He's like, mm-hmm. hey, what do you want to name this? The, the, theologically, it, this is important because God allows us to take part in kingdom building, in kingdom work right. from the very beginning. Um, you know, God could have commanded Adam and said, hey, you're going to name this bird Oriole. Um, this one, you know, whatever. Um, but he allows... He allows Adam to take part. Uh, that's what I see in that in that in that reading there that I think sure. is just really amazing. Um, it, how we get to take part in the in the creation and how we have dominion over all of it. It's it really is impressive. I mean, the idea of giving something its name. There, there's really only one thing in our life that we ever get to name. It's or two things really is those that we procreated. Mm-hmm our children, and that which we have put together or reassembled, our properties. Um, you know, if I, I can name my house or I can name my car, it's things that belong to me or things that I have mostly created. I say mostly because I didn't actually create my children. It was a procreation. It was, it was a subset of creation. I didn't speak them into existence. Um, you know, so we get to name them, and that... That is that is a dominion. You're exactly right. That is a dominion language. Uh, it is a responsibility language. It is a um, uh, it is something that's significant. And so now we have the weird part where man falls mm-hmm. asleep. And yeah, well, so it's it's interesting here because this is this is also and i want to emphasize this verses 19 and 20 are not an alternative description of all the beasts of the field that the lord god made on day six this is a localized in front of adam's eyes creation of all the animals representatives you know so up comes the giraffe who uh fun trivia whose first name literally meant uh leopard camel (laughs) <laughs> That's what the word giraffe originally well, meant. That makes sense. He must have saw the, ca- I, he must have saw the leopard still, and the camel first then. I still say we call them leopard camels. So that's fantastic. Um, but so he, he has all of these animals. He pulls them out of the ground and he goes, what are you going to name this one? This is the representative of all of them that are all over the world. You know, he's got a big horn on his face. Obviously, he's not naming it in English. But for us, it's a rhino, right? And that makes sense. That's his name, et cetera, et cetera. Um, obviously that's not personal names. That is kind names. Uh, all the kinds of this are named that, um, that makes sense. And so, but God is doing this for a purpose that we skipped over in verse 18. Uh, it is not good for man to be alone. Yeah. We, we, we skipped out on that. 
I will make a companion for him who corresponds. I'll make an Ezer. I'll make an Ezer. <laughs> I'll, I'll use the Hebrew term because we really lack an English concept for this. Um, yeah, it says there, corresponds here. What does the ESV render it? Um, uh, ESV says a helper, which is much more traditional, but that that's kind of a difficult concept. Yeah. Um, Ezer in Hebrew is more complex than that. Uh, the the semantic overlap is kind of bizarre. It's it's much more of the idea of of somebody that's absolutely necessary, and they are a more of a companion. It's not someone that's just like, well, I need a little bit of help. It's like, no, 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 you need this. Yeah, this, not a this lesser one. It, not a. It's right. not a lesser. And they're creature. here with you. Um, they're here as part of you. At, right. So the NET, you know, uses corresponds. I guess you know. I, you know, if you're married, that you know, I think about right. communicate, um, because that's like it takes you a good, at least decade before you start being able to communicate with your spouse. Really good. Well, at least so at, at least that's, me. But, that's a, and so you don't yeah. have sin, and so it's like they're they're perfectly communicating. Um, is the way that I would see that text too. So let me tell you how I translated this when I did it for my Hebrew class is. Um, I, I actually use the term companion. Um, I will make him a companion for him who mirrors him mm. because it really carries this idea that this, this person, one that, flesh idea that is in front of you. It's actually, there's this concept of right, facing this thing, uh, whatever it is, whatever companion it is, it needs to match me. Yeah. And, and so I, I actually used the term, it was a much more free-flowing translation of this but it, it's someone who mirrors me someone who is fit for me is more of a classic way of talking about this someone who corresponds to me someone who mirrors me this is this is for me yeah. uh, and i for whatever it is because we haven't seen what it is yet and so god makes all the animals and adam just kind of goes up to it and goes well chicken uh but that's not gonna work uh rhinoceros but that's not gonna work uh, leopard camel, but that's not going to work. You know, lion, but that's not going to work. And so he just goes through and he names all of them. Uh, verse 20, the man gives names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every breeze of the field. By the way, a word to my single brothers. Verse 18 does not tell you you have to get married. Okay, back to verse 20. <laughs> this is talking about the reality of mankind in the world. It's perfectly good to be single. Don't worry about it. Yes, it is. And don't let people use that verse to club you over the head about stuff. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, that the Bible, by the way, calls a gift. Uh, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for all of a sudden we have a name. Hmm. He just has a name. We never saw the naming ceremony for him. Adam. It just means Man. But for the man, in fact, some translations won't even use the proper name here. They will just say the man. Uh, but for Adam, there was not found a helper who could correspond to him. That mirrored him. That right. mirrored him. I, I was kind of like that. That could communicate with him. Right. So, so God fixed that problem. The Lord God, um, by the way, new terminology for God all of a sudden. Um fun stuff caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man um again here uh and while he slept took one of his ribs closed it up in its place with flesh 
The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And he called her Becky. No, oh. not Becky. <coughs> no. <laughs> uh, he actually doesn't name her. He doesn't yet. Name then the man said, this is at last, this at last is bone of my bones. Something that corresponds to me. This is my mirror. This is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Not Becky. Not Becky. Because she was taken out of man. Or because uh, in, in Hebrew, uh, Isha and Ish, right? Woman and man. Uh, they do the same thing that e English does, is that the word woman has man as part of it. Uh, man is Ish, woman is Ish, Isha. And why and so, did God do this, Tim? Well, he tells us in verse 24. Yeah, he tells us the ramifications of this. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become... One family. A, an amazing concept here. One flesh, one family, one unif one almost one entity. Um, it, it's it's a it's a unique expression here because um, and and I would say it's a callback directly to chapter one where it says that he made man and uh, male and female he created them uh, in the image of God. He created yeah, and wow. right and so that they both carry the image of God here, not only because she is his mirror or she is his correspondent, um, which is a word with more difficult meaning. Um, but here, because he, even in their very essence from the very beginning, they were made for each other to become one together. Um, they correspond, they work, they hand in glove. It's, it's male and female. It, this is, this is what it was meant to be. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. A remarkable way to close a chapter. <laughs> it's like, they're not ashamed, they're naked. Um, but also, too, that this imagery of one family um, is going to mm -hmm. be, that theme's going to be used repeatedly throughout the Bible for God referring to his people. Um Israel, and later the church, um, the bride of Christ. So um, this idea of family, of being in the family of God, this, this, is, this is why we uh, theologians are going to, you know, say that, that, that this is all started here in the garden um, with Adam and Eve, that this idea of being one with God, being one family of God, um, that is going to really, you know, multiply this thing um, and and re-Edenize taking back um, the earth after the fall, which they're going to get into that in the next episode. Um, but what right. about the the idea of of being naked and not ashamed? It's you know, it's obviously there's some foreshadowing of of what's of what's obviously about to come um also i mean it makes right. me think that like from a obviously you live up in new york you, even if you wanted to walk around naked you couldn't and, and I'm, I'm being a little silly <laughs> here but you, you also right. got to think about the 
it, it is a perfect state to where, to where you even have the ability to walk around naked where you're not too hot or too cold. Um, right, right. Because clothing is not just a modesty thing. It's a survival it's thing. It's a survival In the need. world that we're familiar with, right. Uh, right. Um, yeah, so uh, the idea of shame and nakedness are occurring in the same... Uh, in the same sentence here, uh, something that in our world we are directly yeah. familiar with, and um, and the the existence of the negation before it, uh, the uh, that they were not ashamed, um, is is this idea that there is something they're experiencing that is lost to us. Whatever it is, uh, it should also tell us that we're in a place we're not familiar with. Yep. Um, not only do we have these bizarro trees, um, we have this garden that God planted or this orchard that God planted. That's, and they don't even know what shame is and they don't know what shame is even, even at their most vulnerable standing there in front of God and all the other person of the world. (laughs) Um, whether you believe in co-atomism or pre-atomism or. Yeah, you can be wrong if you want to. Uh, so, so, the, but the idea that the most shameful thing that every society has ever known is not a shame. Hmm. That that should that sets us up. I like the chapter dis- distinction here. Obviously, the chapters are not original, uh, neither are verses. For anyone who's aware of that, um, but this is a good place to to just kind of sit back and stop, yeah, and ponder that for a while. Um, because the the idea of why marriage exists, the idea of why why is it because that that should be immediately where your mind goes. Why am I ashamed? Yeah. When I'm naked, why is that a shame? Why am I ashamed at all? And that is kind of where your mind needs to be dwelling as you enter the very next chapter because it's about to tell you. Um, and so that's what I mean by allowing, allowing yourself to get confused, dwell in the confusion for a while, and then continue on into the text. And you know what? You can go to bed confused. It's okay. Yeah. I promise. I promise some of the best things I've ever learned about scripture. I did not figure out the day I first got confused about them. Sometimes it was weeks or months later. It took contemplation and just sitting and dealing with it. Um, yeah, I, I have one of those in my paper right now, and I've been wrestling with it for the past week, and it's driving me nuts. Um, but I'm letting it ride until yeah. I'm ready to put it down on paper, right? So it, these these types of things that we're not good at in our culture, and and so if, if you're going through these, you know what? Take the next couple of weeks before this gets released uh, for the next uh, episode to come out, and just. Ask yourself and interact with this. Why am I ashamed when I'm naked? If, if our first parents here weren't, what has changed? Why is it I'm approaching life so differently than them? It has something, <coughs> has, is something substantively different from them to me? And that, that question really does get answered in the next chapter. But, but wrestle with that for a while because it's a good place to, to sit and be curious for a bit. And please don't show up to work naked. Um, don't do that. Don't, don't say be that ashamed to Caleb. That. Yeah, other people will be ashamed for you. So please don't, <laughs> please don't do that. That's not what I we're won't. Saying. I'll probably laugh at you. <laughs> but Tim, uh, 
Yeah, I, th- I think it's it, it it's a good stopping point for us. Um, yep. We should be we should be confused. I, I I believe that the original audience would have been a little bit confused, and and so this right. this idea of of order it, that God's put into place was was perfect. Um, right. And of course, we're living in a in a world of non-order and disorder in the midst of also there's some some order of of thing um and so how we think i guess all of this genesis one and two um theologically how is it that we think about the god that we worship how is it that we think about ourselves in relation to this god um is very very important as we um close out here um that that is that is really what this book of genesis is all about introducing god Um, this who i am this is who you are so so think think, so while you're while we're going and thinking about this idea of nakedness and shame think about the first hearers of this there were slaves in egypt Mm -hmm. slaves in egypt typically worked naked Mm. Mm. think about think about this man adam and eve were given the job of tending and and working keeping track of at least you will of this orchard they were given a job to do and while they were naked there was no shame and there was no punishment nor injustice that brought about this work god designed work for a reason and it wasn't based on slavery and as he's introducing himself to them he says i'm not like your masters in egypt Mm. i'm not like your masters in egypt you will you will not work for me and and i benefit you will work for me and you will benefit Mm. this this it's going to turn everything for them on their head uh and and this this kind of idea that uh, the man and the wife were naked and were not ashamed. To them, they are walking away from Egypt, finally wearing clothing hmm. during the day. And they're hearing this story. That adds a whole nother layer to this concept. Uh, that, that again, we pass over and we don't even see it. Hmm. Um, but they would have they heard that and just gone, but that's directly connected to shame. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So let's ponder that as we leave. I'll close this out. Um, thank you. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you so much for making us a part of your family, for giving us, for giving us an identity, an identity in you. Or we, um, we long for, for that day that we get to be reunited perfectly back back in Eden with the tree of life Lord we um, lift up all of our listeners um, and sit with them um, in the in the same type of confusion in the same type of longing for something better and Lord we, we thank you for allowing us to feel that brokenness in this world um so that so that we know that there is something 
better in relation to you. Lord, thank you so much for loving us. Uh, Teach us to love you better. In your holy name, Jesus, we pray. for listening to Theology Untucked. Join us each week as we engage in all things theological, biblical, and cultural. These are the types of conversations we should be having in the church today, and we aim to play our part. Also, we'd love to hear from you. If you have a question you'd like us to address, or a prayer request, please send them to us. You can reach me at Caleb at TheologyUntucked.com. Or you can reach me at Tim at TheologyUntucked.com. Do note that your prayer requests remain strictly confidential. We will not be sharing them on the show. For more information or to support the show, please visit theologyuntucked.com. Lord's blessings to you all.